So you can put those all together and we can actually watch um, coronal mass ejections and also what's called the solar wind, which is the sun's atmosphere kind of blowing out into the solar system. We can watch all the structures in those move all the way from the sun to the earth, which is really, really neat. That's Dr. Terry Kuchera from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, who joins us via Skype to talk about how scientists observe the sun and the stereo spacecraft on this episode of SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and here today I have Drew. Good afternoon. DJ. Hello. And Dr. Terry Kuchera, an astrophysicist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Hi, guys. And today we're going to talk about STEREO. It stands for Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory. Like we didn't figure that one out after we came up with the acronym, huh? Before we get started, let us talk about your background, Dr. Kuchera. So how did you get to NASA? Uh, what do you do at NASA? And um, what's your involvement with the STEREO spacecraft? I am an astrophysicist, like you said, um, but I've specialized in the sun ever since grad school. In graduate school, I studied solar flares, which are these huge explosions on the sun, and they give off all sorts of radiation, basically light, throughout the whole spectra. And so I was studying them in radio, using the Very Large Array and other radio telescopes like that. And then I got a job, um, postdoc, at NASA Goddard, studying solar flares and x-rays, because it turns out pretty much the same same sort of processes that, that give you the radio also give you x-rays. But you have to do x-rays up in space, so that means that NASA is involved. So I came here and um, worked with the group here that does solar flares. And uh, then when the postdoc was done, I signed on to an, a mission called SOHO. Um, and SOHO's been up there a long time. It's still up there. Um, and SOHO was a joint mission with NASA and the European Space Agency. And it's got a whole bunch of different instruments doing different things on it. Um, and I was on the team of a couple of these spectrographs studying the solar atmosphere. Um, and so that's one of the big things I've been doing. And, and that's still my general research interest is I'm interested in the solar atmosphere and how to study that, especially using spectroscopy. But understanding um, the things that the sun's atmosphere is formed very much by the sun's magnetic field. Um, so understanding how that that causes all the different structures we see and how energy flows around in it. Um, and that kind of thing is, is my general interest. And that relates to things like solar activity, too. Um, and so I've been working there on, on various projects. And at this point, um, I became a member of a stereo team about the time of its launch, which was 10 years ago. And since then, I've been on the team helping with operations, but I also do um, a lot of basic science research and, and other assignments. Excellent. So um, right now you are the deputy project scientist for the Stereo mission. Um, do, were you always in that position or when you came to Stereo, uh, what were your expectations and how has your role you know, developed or changed since the mission began? Yeah, it's been pretty similar because they, they had an opening for a deputy project scientist who basically is, you know, the project scientist has a role with coordinating the, the science teams and the science effort for the mission. And then the deputy helps that person out. I've been involved in stereo, helping out some with operations and things like that. But, and I also work with the data and have been using it to study the sun. 
Um, so that's been pretty similar. You know, I've been taking on more responsibilities as things go along. Um, it's a little bit different than what I did with Soho, where I was actually on the team for one of the instruments. And in that case, I was actually involved in sending, you know, making the plans for what that particular telescope would do on a particular day and coordinating with other um, other observatories and to observe the same thing and a lot of planning and detailed work like that. That was interesting, too. So let's talk about solar science in general. Um how much do we actually know about the sun and how much is left to discover? Well, in a way, we know a lot, right? So the sun is the closest star we have, right? So we know more about the sun than any other star. And we know basic things like we know what powers the sun. We know that there's nuclear fusion down in the core. And we have a pretty good idea of the general structure inside the sun. Um, and we also know that the sun is an active star. So a lot of folks have heard about the sunspot cycle. I assume you guys have heard about that. So if you look at the sun just in a visible light telescope with suitable filters, um, you'll see it's not just a big white ball. It's a big white ball with spots. And those spots, it turns out, are places where the sun has extra strong magnetic field. And if you look at the sun in another wavelength, say ultraviolet, which you can do if you go up above the Earth's atmosphere, you'll see that, in fact, the, Earth, the sun's atmosphere is highly structured and that these areas that are dark and visible light actually have these really bright loops if you look at them in, uh, in, in say, ultraviolet light. And, and that there are even more complex structures that make those loops look really simple. And all that is coming from a really complicated magnetic field on the sun. And that magnetic field is what goes into the solar activity cycle. And, and the sunspot cycle, which goes up and down approximately every 11 years or so. Um, but all sorts of other solar activity go with that. The solar flares, which are these huge explosions on the sun that I mentioned earlier that I was studying as a grad student. Also something called coronal mass ejections, which are basically these huge magnetic clouds that blast off the sun. Um, and out into interplanetary space where they go by the planets and they can affect us here at Earth. So they affect our magnetic field and they cause things like the northern and southern lights, which are really beautiful, of course. Um, but they can also cause problems for our technology. They can cause problems for spacecraft, for communications, power grids, things like that. So that's also an important part of what we do is we're doing research into how to understand solar activity better because it actually affects us. Yes, so I guess I haven't told you what we don't know about the sun because there still are plenty of things we don't know. Um, I'm trying to think where to start. Um, well, one thing is we'd really like to be able to do better um, at understanding solar activity. We know that it's essentially a magnetic phenomenon, that this is a release of magnetic energy, that the magnetic fields on the sun are really complex and twisty, and they'll snap into a simpler configuration, and they'll give off energy. And maybe that means they're accelerating a lot of electrons near the surface of a sun, and, and that ends up giving off light and that's a solar flare, maybe it'll send something shooting across the solar system and that's the coronal mass ejection. Sometimes it accelerates particles to really almost, you know, relativistic speeds. And those are called solar energetic particles and those are a dangerous radiation hazard. So there are a bunch of different manifestations of these events. Um, and we still don't really understand, we know it's all magnetic somehow, but we don't understand the details of what's really going on with those. And we're also not as good as we'd really need to be in being able to predict them and predict when they will affect us here on Earth. I mean, we can do some things, and we do have prediction efforts, but we need to get a lot better at that. 
So when making observations, since you can't predict them, do you just monitor the sun all the time and pick out, detect when something crazy is happening and then you pay extra close attention? Well, there's a variety of things. Um, we can predict them somewhat. For instance, there's this solar cycle I told you going up and down every 11 years. That's basically a variation in the amount of solar activity. So we get a lot more solar activity at the peak of that cycle than at the minimum of that cycle. So we know broadly that's true. We can look at these sunspot regions and the more complex they are, the more likely they are to exhibit activity. So there's whole rating systems of the sunspots. And when there's certain kinds of sunspots up there, you know, oh, we better, you know, we better pay attention to that because that one might go. Um, so there's a lot of effort to improve that so we can find ways to analyze the sun better so we can get a better idea of when you'll get one of these um, explosions and when you won't. Getting Being able to predict for an all clear would be a very useful thing too. Um, so people are working on that. And then some of these things, it depends how fast they affect us. I mean, a solar flare, that's basically light, right? So we find out about it, you know, eight minutes after it happens because the sun's about eight, eight light minutes away. And there's not much more warning except that we see this complicated sunspot region that we think might go. But something like a coronal mass ejection, it's going fast, but on solar system scales, not too fast. So we have these instruments in space called chronographs, which are sort of like um, artificial total solar eclipses in space. We put these little disks up in front of the sun so we can see the outer atmosphere. And with these instruments in space, we can see these coronal mass ejections when they come off the sun. And it depends how fast they're going, but they'll take maybe a day or a few days even to get to us. So we can have some advanced warning that way. And with a spacecraft, I guess I'll get into stereo later, but stereo is actually away from the Earth on the side and it has moved, well, it's been going through an orbit that's taken at a bunch of different locations. But if you can look from the side, you can actually see the um, coronal mass ejections that are moving towards Earth better. So that's helpful too. Um, and then you get more warning that way. So a couple times you've mentioned the, the solar atmosphere, and that's a phrase I've never heard before, and I'm just interested, what, what are you looking at in the atmosphere and what comprises the, the sun's atmosphere as opposed to a planetary atmosphere? One thing about the sun, of course, is it's not solid. So it's sort of funny to call part of it the atmosphere and part of it isn't the atmosphere because it's, you know, there's not a surface per se, right? Um, but we define the surface as what we can, how far we can see in it, how far we can see down. So if you look at the sun in visible light, there's a certain depth you can look down and then you sort of see something we're calling the surface. All the stuff above that we call the atmosphere. And that's the part we can actually most easily observe, although there's all sorts of clever ways people have of figuring out what's underneath the surface too. But um, studying the atmosphere um, and is, is where you see a lot, is where basically you can see what's happening with a telescope. Um, and as I mentioned, it's really highly structured and that structure is all due to the magnetic field. Um, and to be great, I don't know if you guys can put up pictures with this podcast, but we have all sorts of great pictures of the sun that show that structure. When I look at the sun, um, with the proper <laughs> filters over my glasses, of course, but when I look at the sun from Earth, um, mm -hmm. am I looking at the atmosphere or am, I, or am I looking at the surface? You're, you're looking at what we define as the surface. It's called a photosphere. But that's how we define the surface is it's what you see when you look at the sun in visible light. That's what we call the surface. So you mentioned uh, solar flares and coronal mass ejections and how they move at different speeds. 
Uh, what is a solar flare made out of, and what conditions lead to a solar flare versus a coronal mass ejection? Well, some of that is what we're trying to figure out. But a solar flare, basically, if you have something where you have, uh, happens in, again, it's called the corona, which is sort of the extended solar atmosphere, you have a situation where the magnetic field lines get kind of tangled and crossed, and they reconnect, and they will shoot um, particles, basically mostly electrons, but there's protons involved too, but say they shoot electrons down towards the surface. And then you'll get brightenings where they hit the surface and it'll heat material and it'll move up into those loops. And so basically what you get is a brightening at the sun. And that emits all kinds of, you know, radio and x-rays and all sorts of things so that we can see that here at Earth. Okay. A coronal mass ejection, though, is when that magnetic reformation actually causes a magnetic structure to lift off the sun and shoot away from it. And these things can happen together. I mean, basically, that magnetic field is reforming, and it's, you know, leading to all these different processes. Um, and we still don't really know what, because sometimes you can get a big flare that has no coronal mass ejection. And you can have a coronal mass ejection that has little or no flare going with it. But often when you get something really big happening, it has both. And that's one question that we'd really like to be able to answer is why? Why is that true? Why can you get one without the other? What, what, what causes that? And that's an active area of study. We don't really know that yet. Um, what drives the magnetic field of, of a star? Is it like on Earth, we have a magnetic field from um, the hot core inside the Earth. But what what drives the, the magnetic field, what creates it, and um, why is it changing, or what would cause it to change, and how do we know? So, um, yeah, so this is what I haven't been getting into, which is a solar interior. We do know a fair bit about that, but not everything we want to know. Um, as you guys mentioned, the sun, you have, um, you have a, a fusion happening in the core, um, and then the photons kind of move out in this random walk thing until they're about two-thirds of the way out of the sun. And then they hit um, a zone where they move up by convection. So the hot stuff kind of is lower density. It moves up and it cools and it sinks back down, that kind of process. And that layer, you have flows. So you've got a conducting layer of the sun that actually has flows in it going around the sun. And that's kind of similar to what you have in the Earth, you know, with that iron core down there. So it's it's analogous to that that the, 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 that we have a sort of this conducting layer of a sun that can flow and so that's what's generating and it doesn't all rotate at the same speed so the the equators are going around faster than the poles in general and that twist and so that that's what generates the magnetic field and all that sort of like fluid mechanics almost of mixing conductive plasma is what makes the magnetic field kind of unstable because it's not all spinning like in a uniform way, it's all kind of jumbled up and mixed together. Yeah, I mean, there's patterns to it. Um, but yeah, it's not just, it's not a solid body. That's, that's sort of the key part. It's actually one interesting thing about stars is that the cooler stars have more activity than the hotter stars. And that's because the cooler stars have deeper, deeper layers of these convection layers that can, that don't all rotate as a solid object. And then there's the question of, okay, why do we have a solar cycle? And there are a lot of people kind of working on that it's called understanding the solar dynamo, how the, how the magnetic field is generated. And 
Um, that's not my specialty, so I can't get into lots of details, but I think we're still trying to understand a lot of things about the dynamo and the solar cycle. Now, I mean, I said the activity goes up and down every 11 years, but it's not like a clock. You know, sometimes it's a little less, sometimes it's a little more. Sometimes we have a really strong um, solar cycle, lots of activity. Sometimes it's kind of weak. Um, there have been periods where we had a few solar cycles where there was almost nothing. And we don't really understand that. And that's another big area that people are really interested in, is trying to understand and predict the solar cycle as a whole. So with the STEREO mission, what are the science goals? What were you trying to learn for, about the sun with STEREO? So STEREO is very much a solar activity focused mission. So especially interested in solar activity, a lot of emphasis on coronal mass ejections. And the idea of STEREO is that you've got two spacecraft that are looking at the sun from different points of view. So up to now, our telescopes that actually image the sun have all been pretty much near the Earth, you know, sort of an Earth-Sun line. Um, with stereo, we have two identical spacecraft, or pretty much identical, and they're both roughly in Earth orbit, but one's moving a little, it's a little closer into the sun, it's moving a little faster, and the other one is a bit further out, and so it's lagging behind the Earth. And so these guys give us two points of view on the sun. And just like having two eyes is helpful for humans to navigate three-dimensional space and see what's going on, having multiple views on points on the sun and solar activity help us understand better how things are structured, how things move through space, things like that that we need to know to be able to predict them better and also just understand them better scientifically. About how far away from Earth are they? Are they at Lagrange points or are they in more like highly elliptical orbits? Well, they're just in moderately elliptical orbits, and but they're orbiting the sun. So where they are relative to Earth is changing all the time. Right now, they're at about um, they're about 170 million miles away. They're basically on the far side of the sun, and so that's changing all the time. They went really close to the Lagrange points, but they kept going. Um, okay. So the exact orientation has changed throughout the whole mission, and so the things we can do with them has changed through the mission. Kind of diving into history, I suppose, but what sort of uh, resources have we had for observing the sun? Pre-stereo? So how far do you want to go back? I mean, obviously, people have been observing the sun from the ground for forever. I guess the space age is a big thing because the space age lets us more reliably see the sun's corona because we can see in x-rays and ultraviolet where you can see all this detail. And I should mention the reason it's emitting in x-rays and ultraviolet because the sun's atmosphere, for some reason, is really hot. It's actually hotter than the sun's surface. Um, which is another thing that we're studying about the sun and trying to understand why that is. So there have been, but there have been numerous um, spacecraft looking at the sun since the space age began, basically. Um, various kinds focusing on different things. So, and another kind of really useful instrument to have in space, if you're interested in coronal mass ejections, is what's called a coronagraph. And I think I mentioned that earlier, is that's sort of simulating a total solar eclipse where you can, and you can do this somewhat from the ground, there are coronagraphs on the ground, but in space it's better because you don't have light scattering, I mean, you don't have scattering in the atmosphere of a light. So you can put a disk over the sun, and then you can see the faint outer atmosphere, and that's key if you want to see these coronal mass ejections, because there are basically structures in that that are blowing out off the sun. So that in that way, space has also been a really important way to study the sun. Yeah, so with stereo, uh, there's two spacecraft, uh, what unique instruments, uh, you talked about chronograph and spectrographs, 
Uh, does Terra have both of those, or they have specially designed detectors uh, for their mission? Okay, so Stereo does not have spectrographs. It has a suite of imaging instruments that include an EUV camera. So it's used, sorry, that EUV is extreme ultraviolet. So that looks at, right at the sun. It has a couple of coronagraphs that have sort of nested fields of view. And then it has a couple of instruments called heliospheric imagers that image space sort of between the coronagraph fields of view and Earth. So you can put those all together and we can actually watch um, coronal mass ejections and also what's called the solar wind, which is the sun's atmosphere kind of blowing out into the solar system. We can watch all the structures in those move all the way from the sun to the Earth, which is really, really neat. And then the other thing Stereo has, um, and a number many other spacecraft have these too, is they have what we call in situ sensors. So these are sensors actually on the spacecraft that are measuring things go by the spacecraft. So for instance, we have probes that can measure the magnetic field as in the spacecraft, and that's important because, again, all this stuff I'm talking about, magnetic field is key. That's what shapes these coronal mass ejections, for instance. We can measure the speeds and um, temperatures and um, composition of the material that's going by the spacecraft. And that means that when we have two spacecraft, and I should say there are other spacecraft involved here too, um, we can see these disturbances go all the way from the sun to the earth, and then there are spacecraft that are actually sitting there, and the disturbances are going by them, and we can put all that data together, and that's really neat. Um, and Stereo also has radio, scientific radio antennas, that can measure um, radio signals that, some, that, that these disturbances give off too. So when stereo images the sun, um, you say we can watch these things develop. How often are we receiving data from stereo? Is it continuous or is it like once every day? We actually have two feeds. We have a sort of lower resolution um, beacon mode where we get sort of low resolution data down as fast as possible. And that data is used, for instance, by NOAA when they do their space weather forecasts. And then we get higher resolution science data, um, but not so, right, you know, that's a little less regular, but we still have contact daily. Is it kind of like a time-lapse video? Yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. You can go to, you can easily, all our data is online, so you can go make movies out of it and things like that. Um, our time resolution for the di is different for the different instruments, um, uh, but we certainly get m many images a day. So that we need that in order to see the, the solar activity um, and how it's changing. How fast does the activity change? Um, well, there are, for a coronal mass ejection, it'll take a few hours to kind of clear, get out of the area near the sun. So you want, you want images, you know, every, you know a, few, a few an hour or something like that. So being so far away from Earth and kind of in a different orbit than Earth, looking at the sun from different angles, um, that obviously takes time for their, the spacecraft's position to change. The original mission duration was at least two years, but it's been over 10 years since then. Have the science goals changed or? So um, the, the, the mission was basically designed so that we would get what we needed to get done to justify it in two years. And the spacecraft were built so that, you know, they would try to make sure they lasted at least two years. And they did that. So that was our initial mission. But then if a spacecraft is in good shape and it's returning interesting data, then NASA will often um, grant an extended mission. And so that's what we're in now. We're in our extended mission. 
and because stereo is changing position in um, a different location around the sun, then the things it can do change over the course of the mission. So right early on, we were doing a lot of things that were sort of related to things like um, uh, sort of almost stereoscopy. I mean, in fact, we produced some some hook outreach stuff where you could look at with the little um, blue-green glasses and stuff and see 3D. But that's useful because when you're trying to look at structures in the sun's atmosphere with only one eye, really, it's really kind of hard to tell what's going on. I mean, you can see what's going on in one plane, but you can't really get the 3D structures. So with two points of view, we could do that. Um, we were also um, in good locations to um, compare the conditions at the spacecraft, when they're relatively close together, they can tell you about, say, a coronal mass ejection, and they'll both be inside the coronal mass ejection as it goes by, but in different parts of it. So we could do a lot of that kind of science early on. Later, as they got further apart, it took about four years, and they were in a location where they were essentially um, to the side of the Earth. They were, basically, it takes them eight years to get to the point in the orbit where they're opposite the Earth. So four years in, they're basically looking at the sun and the Earth from the side. And that's when you can do lots of studies of these coronal mass ejections as they come off the sun into space and watching how they're moving, see, is it helpful? You know, how much better can we do predicting um, if we have more points of view? And for instance, someday you guys were asking about like the Lagrange points. Maybe it would be useful to put a chronograph at the L5 point and just leave it there. Um, so we're sort of testing out ideas like that. And now with um, a spacecraft on the far side, um, we can do things like look and see the conditions on the sun, on the far side of the sun, which is useful because, well, we can't see them from Earth. The sun rotates. It takes maybe 27, 28 days to go around. Um, solar activity, like those sunspot regions, they can change faster than that. So it's possible for some active region to pop up on the far side of the sun, and we barely know it's there until it's turning around facing us, that part of the sun, and suddenly we've got this big active region we didn't know was there. And with um, spacecraft on the far side of the sun, we can see that. We can also study um, solar activity that affects places other than Earth. I mean, we have spacecraft at Mars, at Jupiter, you know, at comets, all sorts of places in the solar system. And those also can be affected by what we call space weather, by these, by these different kinds of solar activity. So it's handy to have spacecraft that are not just near the Earth, but are in other places too. And I should say that, like, I, that we are coordinating stereo, stereo's two spacecraft, but there are other spacecraft, like for instance, SOHO that I mentioned before, or other spacecraft like you mentioned Discover earlier when we were talking beforehand. Um, and, and people put all those different data sets together. So it's not really just the two stereo spacecraft, it's the two spacecraft plus all these other sensors we have. The, the two stereo is just in a unique position um, in that array of, of spacecraft. So, uh, jumping back all the way to 2006, uh, Stereo A and B, the two spacecraft, uh, did they launch uh, together on the same rocket, or were there two separate launches? Nope, they launched on the same rocket. So, they launched on the same rocket, and then they did some gravity assists around the moon, and so the basically um, lunar assists were used to get them into their two different orbits. Uh, so, now that they've been functioning, uh, you talked about how the initial mission was for two years, um, and it's now been 10 years since. The big news item, the reason we're talking to you today, is you just uh, regained contact 
with one of the stereo satellites. Okay, so um, just to give people some background, uh, eight years into the mission, so a couple years ago, we were doing um, some testing on the two spacecraft, and stereo A did fine. Stereo B, though, when we rebooted it, it had a problem with its, its pointing system, and it ended up pointing, um, basically spinning. And at that point, we lost um, the the we lost communications with it. We think the the antenna, I mean, sorry, the um, solar panels got pointed away from the sun, so the battery died. Um, and and so we haven't been communicating with a couple for a couple years now. During that time, part of that time, it, both the spacecraft were behind the sun. We actually had a period where we couldn't talk to them because if you get well, for one thing, if you get too close to the sun, you can't. It just blocks all the radio contact. Um, also, there are some issues with uh, antenna feeds getting hot um, because they had to look right next to the sun in order to communicate with Earth. Can you talk about what it felt like to lose contact with it? And since then, uh, how things have been without one of the spacecraft and kind of not knowing what happened to it? Uh, it's it's hard to lose spacecraft. I mean, you, you're in space business for a while and you realize it's a tough business. This actually isn't the first spacecraft I've been involved in that that had a problem like this. Um, the last one was Soho, in fact, um, and uh, Soho had a very similar thing happen where it, it got um, where where the pointing went off, and and we actually lost Soho for a number of months. Um, this was back in the 1990s, um, and Soho they actually managed to get it back, um, which is not something you can take for granted. Um, but but that so that that was my first experience with losing a spacecraft, and oh, that was you just feel that in your stomach. It's very hard. Um, but you're around a while and you start to see how it's a really tough business, you know? Um, you, you can know that just from the news the other day about that, that Martian lander. Um, this stuff is hard. Um, right at the moment, scientifically, it doesn't affect us too much because the two spacecraft were basically in very similar locations on the far side of the sun. And we still have stereo A in this sort of unique spot. Um, so we still, scientifically, we can do a lot with it. And so it's still a really useful mission. We would love to get Solar B back, though, um, because it is very helpful for space weather. And of course, you can always do, you know, do more with two than one. So since the two spacecraft um, came out from sort of behind the sun, we have been sort of signaling stereo to to basically contact us. Um, and uh, last a couple months ago, it did. It responded. Um, but we don't have it back yet by any means. So what did it say? Um, well, basically, we were sending it signals to do two things. Um, one thing we think it's probably been like trying to, you know, he sent it, it's been functional. It's been trying to reboot this whole time. And uh, it's kind of hard on its batteries to re probably hasn't been able to do that successfully. It's really hard to turn everything on at once um, when your batteries might not be working quite all the way. Um, uh, an analogy um, one of my coworkers was making is it's kind of like when the batteries run down on your car. You make sure when you start your car, you have those headlights off and the radio off and all that kind of stuff until you can really get that battery going again. So we were sending it commands to basically turn off everything that wasn't absolutely necessary and then to try and send a signal back. So we got the basic carrier signal so that we knew that it was responding to our commands. Then we, you know, we did some diagnoses. Um, they tried sending it some other commands. It was sort of responding. Um, and then they sent some commands to try and get it back because it, 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 is, it, is, it is spinning. And initially those looked successful. 
Um, but at this point, we're actually not in, in contact with it again. Um, so we have, so that's been a few weeks. So at this point, we're basically taking the data that we got from when we were in contact and trying to figure out what state it's really in, because it's really tough. We have really very low telemetry with it. Um, and thinking, okay, um, what are we going to do when, when, it, when it signals us again? Because what we think is happening is um, because it's spinning, the solar panels might not have been pointing to the sun. But as the spacecraft moves through its orbit around the sun, at certain points, the solar panels will point to the sun more. And then it'll be able to charge up and, and, and get going again. And we have to be able to use that window to give it commands that can get it going. And this is a very difficult thing. I mean, like I said, they managed it with SOHO, um, but that doesn't mean that we can always do it. So um, it's very tricky and it's a challenge, but uh, that's where we are right now. Now, when you get this telemetry back from the satellite, do you guys have a model on the ground that you're running your telemetry against? Is it all in computer models or is it something where you're, just, you're looking at what the satellite's orientation is and trying to figure out exactly what's going on millions of miles away? At the, at the satellite. Yes. Um, so I don't. some of these details are not things I know because, like I said, I don't work in the mission ops. They certainly are trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, there are some, some simulators, but I don't know the details about them. Um, and they are taking this data and they're kind of looking at the satellite and trying to figure out what's consistent with what it's actually doing because it isn't just talking to us. It isn't saying, oh, I'm in this orientation and I'm doing this and I'm doing... Because, you know, we can't get all that information from it. So there's a lot of trying to figure out what orientation it's probably in and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, what condition it's in, you know, from the, the data that we have. To close out, I, I do want to ask you to tell maybe an interesting story or one of your favorite um, memories from Soho or, or Stereo. Something that, you know, a crazy event that happened or something that really stuck with you after being on the mission for a long time. Yeah, it's sort of funny being a solar physicist um, because a lot of us were really interested in solar activity. And so we get all excited and we talk to people about how these can have problems because they can't, you know, they can cause blackouts, they can, you know, they can cause problems for spacecraft, all these things. And then we get so excited talking about them. And we really get excited by a really great, you know, solar activity event. And it's so great. We get so excited about it. And I remember talking to someone once about that and she said, but, but isn't that bad? You know, isn't that, that dangerous? I'm like, well, yeah, but they're really neat and interesting. So when, when everybody's freaking out that there's a solar flare and all our electronics are going to burst into flames, you're the one that's like rooting for it and just waiting for it to come? Well, no, we don't want everything to burst into flames. <laughs> you know, that's bad. But we are interested. We find them really interesting and cool. And so we want... You know, events. To, I mean, there's all sorts of things about the sun you can study. You know, we're going into solar minimum, and there's still plenty for us to do studying the solar wind and how that works and disturbances and that. But you know, we get really excited about a really nice, nice big solar event because there's so much stuff to study and find out when we get that data. Yeah. Uh, that that brings up another quick question: When you're observing the sun and you know trying to be around these dangerous things like coronal mass ejections and, and things like that can damage electronics, but you want to have your electronics near them. And like with in-situ instruments and things like that, it's kind of the point. Um, are there 
certain things that you do to mitigate those risks? Or is it like... Yeah, they're definitely radiation hardened. I mean, we have, we use all our parts and, 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 and testing. You don't just put, you know, your regular old Joe Schmo computer up on a spacecraft and send it in orbit around the sun. So all the stuff we do is, has got to be um, hardened to that and, and, and tested for that. So that's definitely a consideration when you build any spacecraft, especially one that goes out into interplanetary space. Low Earth orbit is sheltered to a certain extent. Um, but something that's out away from the Earth's magnetic field is really out there, like you said. So you do have to design them like that. And sometimes there are problems. I mean, you can see when we get one of these major um, energetic particle storms, sometimes our, our imaging detectors can become almost unusable because there's so much little particles hitting them and, and you can't see anything. Um, and, you know, it's possible to, to lose spacecraft like that. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely an issue. And people designing spacecraft um, pay attention to that, and they have to. So what's next for Stereo? Um, like, as it goes around the sun, new opportunities come up down the road, but there's also the factor of the lifetime of the, the spacecraft. Um, what are, are there successors that are being developed to observe the sun? Um, or what are some long-term goals or um, events that we can look forward to with Stereo? So... Um, like I said, we're working on Stereo B. Don't know what's going to happen there. Um, that could take a while if we do recover it. It won't be real soon. But um, Stereo A is doing fine, and it could last a really long time. I mentioned the SOHO mission earlier. That's been up there for 20 years. Um, and so sometimes these guys just keep going and going. Um, is one of the main reasons SOHO is up there is because it's got a coronagraph on it that's really useful for making predictions for space weather. Um, so stereo, um, could be up there for, you know, many more years and there's still lots of neat stuff we can do with it. Um, in the future, um, again, there are a number of spacecraft up there observing the sun. I won't get into all of them. Um, stereo sort of led the way for trying to seeing how you can use multiple points of view to look at space, you know, to look at space weather. Um, it would be really neat if we could get, for instance, some, some spacecraft up there in L5. There's no, you know, concrete plans for that right now, but people are talking about it. Um, there might be a way to, to make that happen, and that would be, we think, pretty useful. And L5 is the, the point that's off, like, opposite from the Earth, and it kind of stays there, always opposite from the Earth in the sun's orbit, or yeah. orbit around the sun? That's right. So any two bodies orbiting around each other have these four points that are gravitationally at least somewhat stable. Um, and L5 is sort of off to the side. Um, and there's also an L4 point. Um, and, uh, and the stereo spacecraft went right near those points, but they kept going. But you could park a spacecraft in there, and it would be a pretty stable location. If you could get it to stop there, it would tend to just stay there. And that might be a good vantage point to, um, to get you know, another point of view on these coronal mass ejections to add to something that was near Earth, which is easier to do. Do you guys use any satellites from other space agencies or just NASA-owned and operated satellites? Nope, we'll use anything we can get our hands on. Um, so I mentioned SOHO, and that's a joint NASA-European Space Agency mission. Um, I use data also from Hinode, which is a Japanese mission. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, we do cooperate with other space agencies, and um, the scientists um, happily use data from all sorts of different spacecraft. 
Well, this has been a really fun conversation for me. Um, so thank you, Dr. Kutera. It's been a pleasure. It's been, it has been fun. You kept mentioning your website where you have the videos oh, yeah. and the uh, the pictures that you have from the sun. Right. What what which website is that? Okay, so the official sort of outreach website is nasa.gov slash stereo. We also have one where we've got sort of all our data that you guys might like, which is stereo.gssc.nasa.gov. That can be, uh, you know, if you really want to look at all our data, that's more more a scientist-related site. So we got JPEGs. Um, we also have, you know, more complex data formats that scientists use, like FITS. But there, basically we have... Um, Images and we also have line plots for things like the, the solar wind conditions and things like that. So yeah, so if you really want to, you will actually see like what does the sun look like today. You could go there. Um, another place if you're interested in what the sun looks like is SDO, which is a Solar Dynamics Observatory, and that takes the ultraviolet images from Earth orbit. This is Spexcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Terry Kuchera, the Deputy Project Scientist for the Stereo Mission, and an astrophysicist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Okay, thank you. As an update to the Stereo B spacecraft, the attempt to recover the spacecraft was not successful. Stereo B has now been out of contact since September 23rd, 2016. Mission operators will attempt to contact the spacecraft on a periodic schedule. As Stereo B's orbit brings it closer to Earth, the spacecraft's antenna orientation and closing communications gap may improve the chances of further communication. Stereo B has proved to be a resilient spacecraft capable of surviving under an array of circumstances that it was not designed to accommodate. Consequently, the hope of recovery persists. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send an email to specscast at gmail.com or tweet to us at RIT Specs. That's R-I-T-S-P-E-X. Our intro music was created by Nelson Scott. You can find more of his music at soundcloud.com slash the Nelson Scott. That's soundcloud.com slash T-H-E Nelson Scott. We'll see you next time on Specscast.